Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study/biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I wanted to say at the outset here that Biblical World podcast is going to have a listener Q&A mailbag episode coming up. And so we'd love to hear your questions and um, uh, things that you'd like to discuss on the podcast. So if you could send your questions to onscriptpodcast at gmail.com, that's onscriptpodcast at gmail.com, uh, we'll be able to go through those and hopefully address some of the questions that you have. Otherwise, you can uh, tweet a question to us at um, onscriptpodcast.com on Twitter. Uh, you can send questions that way. So um, we'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening. If you get a chance to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, we'd love for um, you to do that. That would be a real help to us. Uh, otherwise, thanks so much for, for listening. Enjoy. Welcome, OnScript Biblical World listeners. We are back with another exciting episode. I am Kyle Keimer, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Jansen. And we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Tom Davis, Professor Tom Davis from Lipscomb University. And Tom comes with a ton of archaeological experience and just a lot of, uh, we're going to hear some fun stories today too, I think. Uh, he was, and this is how I first knew him, was he was the director of CARI, which is the Cyprus American Archaeological Research Institute in Cyprus. And he was that back in the early 2000s for about a, about a decade or so. Uh, since that time, he's, well, before that time and since that time, he's excavated uh, many different places through, uh, throughout the Middle East, Europe, uh, the U.S., Asia, Africa. Uh, and he is um, kind of a a master of all things. So it's a great pleasure to have you here, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Kyle. I'm yeah, as you say, I'm really a dirt guy. Um, I'm not I'm not a uh, not a library scholar. Um, my world is the dirt and archaeology. I've been doing it for forty years, and oh golly, I don't even want to think how long, how many seasons. But yeah, I've dug from the Nile to the Silk Road. You know, so everywhere in between. You got to uh, check off those other couple continents that are missing still. Yeah, I haven't dug in Australia or South America. That's it. Everywhere else. You got something to aim for, I guess. It's yeah, it's 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 a lot of as Indiana Jones you know, famously said, it's not the years, it's the mileage. <laughs> Tom also is has the dubious honor of being the first person to attempt to teach me archaeology. And any shortcoming there would be the students issue. He was there at Tel Borg, my first excavation directed field 6 which was just a little tiny amount of ash remaining from reed huts so that was a, a pretty fun context for your first crack at archaeology and that was back when you were at Cary still right yes yeah and mark survived um <laughs> so did i um, yeah. although that was questionable on a couple of occasions uh, but no he 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 did all right and i was very glad that he became an epigrapher let's put it that way <laughs> same here <laughs> Well, there's you, you got to find a job for everybody. That's the joy of archaeological digs. Find your strengths, man. Find your strengths. <laughs> right, right. Well, Tom, um, why don't you give us a little background about yourself? I mean, how did you kind of come into the field? I mean, I think Mark and I know you pretty well, but you know, tell our listeners a bit more about yourself. I, I started in history. 
uh, I was interested in medieval history and went to college. And to, uh, to avoid taking an Old Testament survey course, I took an Old Testament archaeology course without her. This is a Wheaton College. And it was so much fun. I said, oh, this is what I want to do. And yeah, didn't look back, basically. Um, went to first Bryn Mawr College for uh, started my graduate career there, but they were classical and a little too ancient in some ways in how they looked at archaeology. Um, so I transferred to Arizona, where I studied under Bill Deaver, uh, the leading you know biblical archaeologist of his day, although he's an atheist. Um, and uh, that's where I just got really interested in the history of the field and also in excavation. And I dug in Jordan, I dug in Cyprus, and, you know, off to the races after that. Um, my career's been kind of varied. Um, I came out with my PhD thinking, oh, they're going to love me. Who's going to hire me? And, you know, five years later, I'm still unemployed. Um, I said, well, what can I do? I can do archaeology. So I became a professional archaeologist in the United States for 12 years. And from there, really, I uh, transitioned to being the director at Cary and then was headhunted to uh, start the, help start the PhD archaeology program at the time at Southwestern Baptist. And then when they terminated the program uh, three years ago, we were brought to Lipscomb. And so, you know, we've hit the ground running and uh, are flourishing. So that's how I ended up here. Now, when you say professional archaeologist, unpack that a little bit. What do you? What, you're working for companies doing? Um, what this is contract archaeology, often called salvage archaeology. That's not quite accurate. Um, in which either government agencies or private developers or anyway people who need a federal permit for their project, where the like a FERC permit for a interstate pipeline, they will need to do archaeology. So they would hire companies like mine. And we go out and deal with what's there and uh, give them recommendations how to avoid them, et cetera. And uh, sometimes you got to do really good archaeology, and sometimes it was nasty, nasty archaeology. But it, it, it kept the wolf from the door, and kept. I learned geomorphology. I learned a lot of prehistoric issues, landscape archaeology, things like that, that I didn't have training in before. It was very practically helpful as well. Well, it's, it's good to hear, too, because... I think maybe for some of our listeners, particularly any who are interested in getting into the field in a bit um, more developed way, you know, there's not just one avenue. There are different types of archaeology. There's sure. different elements of it, different practical elements too. So even though you can have this kind of interest and passion in the Near East in particular, don't let that dissuade you if you love archaeology as well, because there are different avenues that you can that you can pursue, particularly if you're in the U.S. Yeah, the dirt's the dirt, and. You know, it's it's a, a young person's game. Um, it's not for the elderly like me anymore. But uh, it, you know, you will steal a lot of the world, and you'll learn a lot of stuff. So, yeah, get a degree, get a good field school, and you can be hireable. So, would you say your your big break then came with Carrie, or what's the sort of the next major? Well, my, my big break actually came with Jim Hoffmeyer. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> Egyptologist. Um, Jim is an Egyptologist, and he's wise enough to know he's not a dirt archaeologist. And when he started to dig at Tel Borg, he came to me and said, I need help. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you know, it's a complex site. So he actually hired me through my CRM company to go out and help him. And we're walking across the site, and he 
we're walking across a lot of, you know, domestic material. And he says, I don't know where the domestic area is. And I said, Jim, you're walking on it. And he says, uh, I need a field archaeologist. Can can you come help? And so I started working there. That got me re-engaged with the Near East, uh, encouraged me to uh, publish my book. And uh, that led me back into Cary. And then, you know, the rest is history, as they say. So, yeah, it was really Jim Hopmeyer and Tel Borg, which brought me back into Near Eastern biblical archaeology, and your your book was uh, is a is a good read too for people out there. Uh, Shifting Sands, if I remember the title correctly, uh, it was based on your dissertation, but it is the history of the field of biblical archaeology. And so, for you know anyone who is interested in having a good description of the the history of the field, this is the, the uh, great place to start. Yeah, it was fun, and it also focuses specifically on things of interest to our listeners of biblical archaeology of W.F. Albright, Ernest Wright, uh, Bill Deaver. How did the field shift and change, and why, in some ways, did that whole paradigm disappear? And what are we? Where are we at today? And that's one of the things that still interests me a lot. Um, most of Bill Deaver's students, you know, obviously would study Iron Age or Bronze Age archaeology in Palestine. I'm the only one among them who went into later material. Uh, in many ways, I'm the New Testament early church side of the archaeology tandem here at Lipscomb. And so that was, a, you know, an offshoot in many ways of my own thinking and engagement with archaeology. Yeah, and it's, it's, I think, important to talk about that, like, at length here, as there seems to be a certain tendency in the field, at least with biblical studies, that there's way more of us doing the Old Testament timeline than the New. Yeah, people forget there's another Testament. Um I mean, I had this experience when I first was hired at the seminary. Uh, my dean came to me and said, oh, uh, you can teach an Old Testament survey course, right? And I said, uh, I mean, I can, <laughs> but do you really want me to? I'm, I'm a New Testament guy. He said, but you're a biblical archaeologist. So there was the assumption that I would therefore have to be some Old Testament person. But biblical archaeology, of course, includes the New Testament, if you're a Christian. And this engages the text into the world that it came out of, which is exactly the same as we do with Old Testament archaeology. So the principles are no different. It's just in some ways the questions are focused differently because no one except a few lunatic out there are going to say Jesus didn't exist. Now, there's some archaeologists who say David didn't exist, but they're not going to say Jesus didn't. So we don't have the same questions of historicity, for example, to that level. But we do have questions of how did they interact with the world? What was Herodian Jerusalem like? Why does Herod interact with Jesus, you know, with the wise men the way he does? All these are questions of biblical archaeology and New Testament archaeology. Yeah, I think that's a really great point to bring out because, Mark, as you said, we, we often are a bit myopic in our view of what biblical archaeology is, and there is a lot more than typically is ascribed to that to that moniker. And if you actually go back and think about Albright's kind of original definition of what is biblical archaeology and how broad a field does it take you? Well, it goes from basically the Atlantic seaboard to um, India and, uh, you know, from the Neolithic period up to the Islamic period. And yep. so it's, it, you got to bring everything together because nothing happens in a vacuum. And so much of what comes after, you need to understand what comes before and see how everything is kind of related and why certain things are significant and how they're significant. I mean, archaeology in the last 20 years in the Eastern Roman Empire has transformed the way we see Paul. We have much more understanding now of what it means to be in a colony, 
what it means to be in a negotiated space of a colony. And that's where Paul's gospel is most effective. Another example is Galilee. Um, 20 years ago, you know, 30 years ago, uh, Galilee was thought to be this backwater out of nowhere. Now we know archaeologically it's engaged and connected to the greater world around it. There's trade coming in from the Roman world. There's a lot of elite stuff going back and forth. This is not a backwater, and we shouldn't think of it that way. And we got to get out of our minds that Jesus is some you know country bumpkin out there uh, without connections to the world. Yeah, and you can look at even things at Galilee, like the the sheer volume of the fishing industry. And we think, oh, fishermen, it's not going to be you know elite space. But then you can see that these are actually some of them are very wealthy fishermen. And that's not coming out of a textual record. That's coming out of the archaeological record. But I wonder, Tom, if you could give us an example of something specific, because your niche has kind of turned into here lately into more of the Pauline archaeology, I guess, if that's the way we yeah. want to phrase it. Um, what what does archaeology allow you to do, like with a specific text or something from Acts sure. and his travels or maybe something from one of the epistles? Famously, there's a um, there's a, there's a, there's an internal struggle in the first mission journey of Paul, described in the book of Acts, starting in Acts 13, where he goes to Cyprus. And they will land in Anatolia, and when they, when Paul, Barnabas, and Mark come ashore, there's a big fight between Mark and Paul about what they should be doing. And traditionally, this has always been explained as oh, a theological issue, or uh, Mark's a chicken, he's scared of the hills, he's scared of malaria, you know stuff like this. We know now archaeologically probably exactly why they fought, and it's archaeology that gives us the answer. What happens is, when you go to Cyprus, that Paul and Barnabas, as a mission trip, first go to Cyprus. And I think that since they're coming from the church in Antioch, which is founded in Acts 11 by believers from Cyprus and Cyrene, North Africa, okay, that their first mission trip is back to Cyprus, and they intend to go to North Africa. Because they go through Cyprus, as Luke tells us, and they end up at Paphos, and that's the capital. And from Paphos, you don't sail north to Turkey. You sail south to Egypt or west to Rome. And the Roman governor there is a man named Sergius Paulus. This is what the, text, this is what the New Testament tells us. And Sergius Paulus, we know from archaeology, his family was from Pisidian Antioch in Anatolia, which is where Paul's going to go next. But he wouldn't have planned to sail from Paphos, but they do. And they go north. Now, this is against all the trade routes, all the, all, all the currents, and all the normal sailing pattern in the eastern Mediterranean here. Why do they do that? Probably because the governors asked them to go to his family and take the gospel. It makes perfect sense. This man's become a believer. He wants his family to get the gospel too. So here Paul and Barnabas and Mark land in, in uh, Perge, in, in southern Anatolia, and Mark says, no, you're, you're breaking the agreement. You're, we're supposed to go south. We're supposed to go to North Africa. And Paul says, no, I think the Spirit's leading us north. And so they have a falling out. But of course, it's not permanent. We know from later texts in the New Testament that Mark and Paul are colleagues together. And it makes much more sense to me they have a strategic fallout about strategy than about theology or anything else. And we wouldn't know that if we didn't know what the trade routes looked like. And we know that based on the discovery of pottery in Cyprus and in southern Turkey and letting us see how the trade routes work. So there's a case where 
we had a very you know challenging text that's our newest archaeology tells us oh here's a very simple explanation makes sense oh wow, that's that's really interesting and i think it's a it's a great example too that of just how number one there's different layers to the text i mean there can be theological issues historical issues however much but we we definitely want to focus on the archaeological because this is our kind of window into the past in a way that removes to a certain degree certain obfuscating layers of kind of ideology yeah. or history and it allows us to then hopefully come to a more um clear focus of what the text is really what the issue is and i think this is a great example where you've used the archaeology to bring that corrective yeah theologians don't like that answer they they they'd much prefer to think <laughs> what's like um but you know they, it's another case where luke luke tells us in the text and we just didn't notice it really is on the cyprus visit uh the text talking about barnabas and saul barnabas and saul barnabas and saul suddenly when they get to paphos it flips and it's Saul and Barnabas. And Barnabas is from Salamis in eastern Cyprus. He's a Hellenistic Jew in that world, just like Paul. But they've gone into a Roman world now. We know this archaeologically, that Paphos is a new space. It's a different kind of place. It faces west, not east. The trade goes west, not to Antioch. And so when they crossed that division into Paphos, they've entered a different cultural space. It's a divided Cyprus not a unified province culturally. And this is clear from the archaeology, from the coinage, from the architecture, from the pottery. And here's Luke telling us this right in the text, that he changes who's in charge, because Paul's able to adapt to this, being from Tarsus in a more Hellenistic Roman world, whereas Salamis is not, and Barnabas is not able to adapt, and so Paul takes the lead. Fascinating. I love that. Just being able to connect all the dots, right? And like, we all have the Bible, but not very many people have the archaeology, specifically the Cypriot archaeology, or we get a lot of documentaries and popular sources on Israel and on Rome and Athens and wherever. But um, you've ended up also specializing in Cyprus, and that's where I would say your longest running largest project is. So let's let's talk about that one a little bit, too. And that, of course, connects to the Christian world quite well. Yeah, that, that that's where my heart is. Um, and I've been excavating a Corian the Corian Urban Space Project since 2012, but my connection with the site goes way back to 1984 when I was this wet-behind-the-ears MA who was asked to lead a field crew for an excavation at Corian. And I said, uh, David Soren, professor, I was in a seminar with him on Cyprus, and he reached out to Bill Deaver and asked Bill, who can I have that could lead a crew? And Bill said, well, take Tom. So I said, sure, I'll go to Cyprus. You know, I don't want to be in the desert all the time. This would be great. And so I show up and it's, you know, 80 feet from the Mediterranean Sea. And it's like, oh, I could do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I didn't understand is I was going to be the field director with two seasons of excavation in the Middle East. I was the field director in the city of Corian. And it's like, okay. Um, fortunately, I didn't know enough to be scared. Um <laughs> So I just sort of did it. I mean, I was extremely well-trained by a dear brother, my late friend, Ron Gardner, who passed away uh, New Year's Day this year, who had taught me how to dig in Jordan. And Ron had been the field director at the Temple Mount excavations and was recognized as probably the leading, 
the best field archaeologist, ex excavator in Israel. And so I was well prepared. Uh, I didn't realize how well till I survived that. But I spent two seasons in Cyprus as field director uh, at Corian. And then, uh, you know, I always thought, yeah, I'd like to go back there. I'd, li I'd like to do this. And when I became carry director, I, I couldn't run my own project at the time. Too much going on. But the Department of Antiquities came to me my last year and said, we want you to do Corian. We're the only, you're the only one we trust. Can you do it? I really didn't want to take on a huge site like that, but it's, you know, they say that to you. Oh yeah. Okay. You're going to do this. So I said, sure, we'll do it. So we started the Corian urban space project in 2012 and we've had five seasons in the field and uh, we're going back for a sixth season in 2024. We've been excavating a major urban villa in the fourth century AD. The amazing thing about Corian is it was destroyed by an earthquakes, series of earthquakes in the fourth century. And they were never came back. Many places were never reoccupied within the city and never excavated, never disturbed. So it's all there still, that pristine moment, one of those rare things in archaeology, that moment in time is still there. We found this in the earthquake house with uh, the connection to the fact that Cyprus is Christianizing at this point. And here's a way to look at that process in a moment of, of tension and great you know, despair for the people. But it is actually the earthquakes on Cyprus act as a catalyst to the shift to Christianity. Because before the quake series of quakes in the 4th century, the temples are in good repair. Afterward, they're never touched again, and the churches start popping up. It is those quakes which act as the spark to shift. Because Christianity has an answer to destruction and death, and paganism does not. And it, it, it's lived right out there at Corian. So that's why we're excited about it. Um, I wanted to dig the non-elite, you know, the poor folk, the normal folk of life. We've Everybody's looked at the high-end stuff. I'm going to look at the non-elite, but archaeology doesn't work that way. And so I dug next door to the earthquake house, which was a poor house, basically. And literally across the street, we find a massive urban villa with mosaic floors, marble cladding, frescoes up on the walls, you know, imported glass from Egypt and eh, you name it, they got it. And I have to deal with the elite, but you know, elite people have beautiful sculptures and we found a few. So there you go. There's some benefit, I suppose. And you have one of those classic stories where you're thinking, okay, we're about to wrap up the project, right? Mm. And you find something like, nope, now I have to go back. Right? Yeah, always... we, we, were, we were getting close. We were thought we were going to finish this past year in 2022. And, you know, one of the students says, hey, I think there's something here. And actually it was the uh, the butt of a uh, little sculpture. And it turned out a little four foot high, beautiful, almost flawlessly intact sculpture of probably a young Apollo holding a, uh, a goose. And he was face down, just dropped right onto the mosaic floor. And basically the government said, you're not done yet. <laughs> So, okay. Um, I mean, it's a go we, he's missing still part of his lower leg, so we got to go find it, okay, basically. So, um, <laughs> eh, what you got to do? Is that in the official write up for the of course not. future season? Find missing leg. No. <laughs> this will be, be probably described as continuing to expose the cultural expression of the uh, interactions and uh, level of 
uh, quality of the inhabitants of the house. <laughs> Which is really what, you know, what the, uh, draws the students in. So. Yeah, find the rest of it. <laughs> but so that's, that's been, a, been a, you know, really, and this is a site. Cyprus allows you to use uh, students as excavation uh, labor, huh, as it were, but also this is great training for them. And Steve and I, my colleague Steve Ortiz here, and I have joked that the excavations we do in Israel, and Lipscomb has seven excavations, um, is really our, our basic training. And Corian happens to be the commando school. So um, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, a number of students are getting dissertation topics out of the material here. So, And that's ultimately what you want to do as a professor, is be in a place where you're providing research for the students that's engaging with very significant topics of cultural change and shift and the Christianization of the island. So yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased with that, what's happened here. Well, and Cyprus just in general is such an interesting place. I mean, I've, I had the fortune of excavating several seasons there myself at Adalian, and which is right smack in the middle of the island where you're not next to the water at all and it's hot and hotter. Um, but it was, it was an, you know, it was a fantastic uh, place because not only do you have such a rich archaeological record there, but it is this mixing pot of different cultures. And so anyone who's interested in surrounding cultures, you're going to find uh, an element of that in Cyprus. And, and as you said, even when we see uh, some of the preservation there, I think, I guess my point is, Cyprus offers an opportunity that sometimes you don't get in other countries in the Middle East to excavate and expose things due to modern situations of this, that, or the other. So make, it makes it an extremely enticing place to be able to do things, but it, because it is this melting pot in antiquity, you're going to find really fantastic materials yep. and see these transition points. And I love that that illustration you gave of the earthquakes, that basically it was a natural phenomenon that knocked these temples down. They didn't want to rebuild them, open the door for the possibility of Christianity to expand. You're not going to find that in the history sources. You're not going to no. find that in probably many of the textbooks too, but it's the archaeology is filling that in saying, here's, you know, look at the changing situation. It, you know, there's a practical element that the archaeology always provides for interpreting events. One of the nice things about working on Cyprus is, you know, historically in culture, it's been a melting pot, but you, you, maybe not the right word. It, it, it's been a place where all kinds of cultures have come in together and the Serbians have had to learn how to still maintain their identity with all that going on. How do they deal with the fact they're conquered by Assyria? How do they deal with the fact they're conquered by Persia? How do they deal with the fact they're conquered by Greece? How do they deal with the fact they're conquered by the Arabs? How do they deal with the fact they're conquered by the Crusaders? How do they deal with the fact they're conquered by the Ottomans? And they can't leave. So they, their identity comes together as both absorbing and rejecting elements of these outside cultures. It's a real negotiated identity. And you know it's fascinating archaeologically to see that. And then to see it in the modern culture is still there. So uh, it's a wonderful place to work. They, they, the Cypriots are marvelous to work with. They're excellent colleagues. And, uh, you know, it, it's been uh, one of those privileges of my archaeological career to actually dig on Cyprus. And great food and great beaches for those that aren't sold on the archaeology. I, you know, that's one thing that I've, I've missed over many years not being back is the, the food in particular. <laughs> yeah. How can you not like, you know, calamari, you know, sitting there on by the beach and, you know, with the brandy sour, well, never mind. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's a great location. I, my, my first year there, I was trying to be very culturally sensitive and 
every day the sh a shepherd would come by. It was still an open world in a pasture. It was not now it's a national park, um, Coriant. And uh, he would come by with his with his flock of, of goats, and they'd come and they'd start chewing down on everything, including my lunch. But every morning I would greet him and say, good morning in Greek. And he would laugh. That's all he'd do. He'd just laugh. Okay, I don't know who this guy is. Every morning, I'd just do it again, good morning in Greek, and he would just laugh. It wasn't all for three weeks. I finally realized what the problem was. I wasn't saying Kalimera, which is good morning in Greek. I was saying Kalimari. Okay. <laughs> so I finally get it right, and I say Kalimera. And he says in perfect English, no, no, squid, squid. <laughs> ah. I mean, the guy had been dining out on me for weeks, you know, squid man. I mean, yeah, she's... You know, sometimes it works, and you know, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> I, uh, from one extreme, I guess, of your travels to the other, I do want to bring it up just because it's such a unique context archaeologically. You also co-directed, I believe is how we worded this ultimately, the project at Kazakhstan, uh -huh. which is probably not a country that's ever come up on our podcast. And I'm aware <laughs> no, of. it has not. Oh, <laughs> uh, this was a fascinating uh, story. Um, in 2014. A local farmer was picking up a rock to build into his barn. It's always a farmer. It's about three <laughs> black stone, okay? He flipped it over and had a cross on it. And, you know, the folk Islam world of Kazakhstan, this is bad, man. So he threw it out. Well, a school teacher in the village heard about it, and he reached out to a guy he had met once who was the head of archaeology for all of Kazakhstan. And um, Bipakov, Karl Bipakov was the name. He was one of the Soviet kind of additions. And uh, he was interested. So he sent his former student, who is now the UNESCO rep for Kazakhstan, a guy named Voyokin, out to find it. Well, interestingly, Dmitry Voyokin had become a Christian after the wall came down. He was exploring spirituality and had become a Baptist, of all things. <laughs> so he reached, he went online and tried to find, where can I find Baptist archaeology? Well, he came up with Liberty and this Southwestern Seminary. So he sent an email off, and Liberty didn't respond, and we did. And we said, yeah, we're interested. It's kind of cool. He said, can you come and help me figure out what this is and just check it out? So my colleague and I said, yeah, this is never going to happen. Not, not as, you know, this isn't going to happen. But we went out. Yeah, we'll get a show. Okay, fine. So we went out to Kazakhstan, and we were hosted by a guy who had had a degree from the seminary and been there involved in uh, education and stuff for 30 years. He spoke flawless Kazakh, and he was really excited by this. He thought this was a great opportunity to try and get to know more of the history of Kazakhstan. And so we said, ah, okay. And we thought, yeah, we're just sort of speculating ourselves with Dr. Bipakov and Dr. Voyalka. You know, what are we going to do? Ah, I don't know. What would you do, Steve? Ah, maybe we'll do this. We'll do that. You know, we'll do a survey. We'll do some remote sensing. And um, we sort of said, well, are you interested? And I said, well, how do we get a permit? I mean, he said, we just did. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> Five-minute conversation, we just got a permit? What are you talking about? The government gave us a permit to go out there and check out this stone. Okay, so we went out there, a place where it's allegedly found. We discovered later we were told the wrong spot. And by the end of the season, we hadn't found hardly anything. Last two days... We found out we were in the wrong place. And so I said, all right, old school, baby. 
lined everybody up on this big field and said, every five meters, you flip over anything larger than your fist, and we see what we find. These last two days of the project, we went out and we turned up seven gravestones that had crosses on them. And we knew now we were in the cemetery. And that is taken off. There's now a church there we found. This is the first archaeological evidence of Christianity in Kazakhstan before the Russians. And it's been a very exciting thing for Kazakhstan because they like being a multicultural space. And the actual local Christians are excited because they can say, hey, I can be a, a Christian and be a Kazakh because we were once Christian too. So it's a very positive development for everybody and the Kazakh government is very pleased with this. But yeah, not what we expected when you're digging Cyprus and Jordan to end up digging on a site that is 10 miles from the Chinese border on the Silk Road. What was the date of the gravestone? These are 13th and 14th century. Um, and the during the Pax Mongolica, um, the Neymars uh, were a Christian tribe. And in fact, one of Kangas's wives was Christian, Kangas Khan. Mm -hmm. So there was a tolerance there, Christianity. And so they were allowed to function out there around this one city, along with the Buddhists and the Muslims. And we found, you know, mosques and things like this. This was the first church we found archaeologically in Kazakhstan. So it was very exciting uh, to see it. Uh, you know, come to fruition and show how multicultural Kazakhstan was, but also to show the reality of the Church of the East and how extensive it really was. The texts are written in Syriac, uh, in Old Turkish, with local names. So, like, you know, but the, the they'd be like the priest, the son of so and so, the son of so and so, and that's exactly what they do in Kazakhstan today. So they're very excited about what we found, and that work is still ongoing. In fact, we have a student with us now at Lipscomb who is training uh, to. Go back, go to Kazakhstan, and you know, work, continue that work there with a PhD. Nice. That's that's really interesting, and it just goes to show too the the happenstance sometimes in the field of how things unfold. I could have walked away and said, "Okay, we're not going to find it," or, "Ah, eh, let's let's go old school." Yeah, <laughs> got two days left. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Two days left. <laughs> what I didn't what I didn't tell you was that we also had to march through six foot high marijuana plants to get out there. Um, there was a, there was an old Soviet collective farm, and so. We were thinking, well, if we harvest this stuff, we'd actually fund our project. But... <laughs> and the dig house, dig house in air quotes, oh. was just a tad different than uh, your life in Cyprus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Cyprus was nice, okay? You're right by the Mediterranean and all that. In, in Kazakhstan, we had a house where they nailed the windows shut because they didn't want the demons to get us. Very, 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 very nice of them, okay? They're very kind. Uh, in August, okay? And um, the running water was non-existent, so there was an outhouse. And to shower, you would dive into a glacial-fed spring, which was about two degrees. <laughs> so you'd sort of lather up, dive in, come out, lather, dive in, and thaw out by the time you got back to the house. Um, which, 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 you know, <clears throat> it was all right. Hey, you know, there's all kinds of health benefits with this, uh, you know, extreme temperature exposure. So you guys were literally probably the healthiest archaeologist out there. Cutting yeah. edge, man, cutting <laughs> edge, yeah. And one of our students, in fact, got stuck uh, in between countries. Um, he was uh, from a Croatian, and he had gotten his visa. What he didn't tell us was he only was allowed one entry. So we'd go down to, to Kyrgyzstan to meet with the UNESCO folk there and talk about some other sites, visit some sites. And we're coming back across the border, and he got stuck in between. They wouldn't let him in. So basically, Dr. Ortiz and I had to give him all the money we had and say, uh, you know, see ya. <laughs> Um, that's what happens in archaeology sometimes. But 
our 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 colleague based in Kazakhstan was able to call some friends and they worked out getting him out. But yeah, you know, it it has its liveliness on occasion. Another one was we found uh, on the site a very shallow burial, and this was of an individual face down with a bullet hole through the back of their skull. And uh, when we found this, the lo- we, of course, you have to tell the local police. And they came out and they panicked because they said, oh, Spesnats, Spesnats. <laughs> That's special forces of the Soviet era. So this was a KGB killing, archaeology in the former Soviet Union. <laughs> so then how do you get then from Kazakhstan to the Sudan as well? So so walk us to yet another stage of your uh, career It's here. all the garden spot tour, okay? <laughs> Sudan, yeah. Sudan has come out. Interestingly, um, Dr. Pierce Paul Cressman, who is the director of ACOR, that's the American Center for Research in Amman, uh, one of the sister schools of Kerry and the Albright in Jerusalem, um, is the director of this project at the Pyramid of Taharka. Taharka is from the 25th dynasty of Egypt, and this was the Nubian pharaohs, the, the, the black pharaohs of Egypt. Okay, And this is the burial site for that whole dynasty, except for one or two characters. And he's been digging there for a few years. What he does is he dives into the into the burial chambers because they're all under water. The burial chambers are under the groundwater, has risen because of the Aswan Dam and, and new dams. And so now they're all underwater. So he has to dive into the chambers to find out if anything's left. They were allegedly excavated by George Reisner uh, during World War One, but he missed some stuff. So that's what Pierce Paul's doing. And he said to me, hey, would you be interested I really need to try and find the temple that Reisner located and didn't record. And we said, sure, why not? So in January, I went to Sudan with three students and uh, my colleague, Jim Hopmeyer, and we found the temple, cleared it, and discovered a lot of things Reisner did not record, recorded them. And uh, so we've been really able to make a nice contribution to what probably is the mortuary temple of Taharka. But yeah. It's a little different. It's more like Kazakhstan than Cyprus. Um, and of course, in all these settings, when you're outside of Israel, I don't know if your listeners understand, you don't work with, with students. You pro- your workforce is local uh, workmen. And so we had local Sudanese excavators uh, who we hired uh, and local, local Sudanese who were our workforce. And uh, as a student there, you're working with them. So you really need to know your archaeology to be able to do that. Because you're the only one there who knows what they're doing in some ways. And you also have language issues on occasion, too, which come up. So it's a challenge, but it's great fun. And I, I loved Sudan. I thought the people were marvelous and very welcoming. And uh, uh, it was just everything had to be done in cash. It's that kind of world. So. Lugging the briefcase around. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's sort of like, you know, Weimar Germany. I mean, I would go to the bank for a payroll of a million Sudanese pounds. You know, and that's two suitcases under my bed. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, it had its it had its interesting moments. Um, very Indiana Jones in that way, you know, thirty workmen using jerry cans and and uh, shovels, and you know you can't use the equipment because they're not allowing you to on the site. So it's back to the old days. It really felt like nineteen twenty. You know, you know, you mentioned the Bedouin. It takes me back to Borg and and those guys that we worked with there, who some of them, you know, they don't know the like necessarily all the historical details. And maybe some of the, the guys in the Sudan wouldn't be able to tell you very much about Taharka, but they know the sand. 
Yes, they, they do. They know when they've hit a different layer, mm -hmm. so they can actually be very useful in in that sense, like in terms of like stratigraphy. Oh, we had an extraordinary guy that everybody had, had nicknamed the Tiger, <laughs> Abdul Aziz, and he he was he was extraordinarily good. Uh, we gave him a trowel at the end of the excavation as sort of an extra reward, which he was very pleased with. Um, yeah, some of these guys can be extraordinarily good excavators. Uh, in in Sinai, when I worked with the guys through seven years, I mean, by the end of that, they were they were just phenomenal. In fact, I remember one time the uh, students, <laughs> like Jansen, um, <laughs> were asked to lay out some you you know lay out. I wanted them to lay out a, a two by twenty with five meter intervals. And they couldn't do it. They just couldn't get it straight. And so, that was the other students to clarify. I, I, I came out and and so I turned to my one of my Bedouin guys that solemn fuddle and he just took it out by eyeball, boom, boom, and you measured it was within a half a centimeter. You know, so yeah, they know what they're doing better than students do sometimes. <laughs> they don't talk back as much either. <laughs> they're not as needy, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it must have been a, a really. Um, popular one because I know there's a National Geographic special about some of the work there. And I've watched it with my kids and they were fascinated about scuba diving in pyramids to try and dig things. So yeah, that's what Pierce Paul does. And he, he's welcome to it, man. I am not going to do that, you know, but uh, he's, he's welcome to do that. Uh, we were filmed um, on site by a couple of different groups, which I can't talk about right now till they release it. But uh, yeah, there were two, at least two film crews on site with us this uh, in January. Yeah, there's a lot of press and a lot of interest. The American ambassador came to visit the site. So it, you know, was definitely on the radar for the, the Sudanese government and, you know, the general archaeological community. And that that's always fun when that happens. Yeah. Would you say there's a, a an increased uh, awareness and interest in the archaeology there in Sudan and in some of these, you know, kind of, I think a lot of people think Egyptology, they think more traditional, you know, earlier periods, but, but there's so much in the late period that is... This is wide open. I mean, nobody's there. There's like three or four teams in the entire country. Um, it is phenomenally, we don't even know the pottery sequence. You know, there's a lot of basic groundwork has to be done. Tremendous opportunities for students who are interested in Egyptology and going on and biblical connections, you know, in Sudan. Um, it's it's really a, a, an exploding field, which is a great place to get into the literally on the ground and doing. Too many Egyptologists don't dig. It's one of the problems. They don't have the excavational experience to handle a site like Nori. So when, you know, I would say to any student out here listening who's interested in Egyptology, learn how to dig too, because you'll have a lot more opportunities than if you're just going to be an epigrapher. Um, we need them as well, of course. And we're doing a project at Karnak, which is primarily epigraphy. But you're going to find new data in many ways from, in the, from digging it out in the ground. And Sudan is one of those places which is almost untouched archaeologically. It's a wide open world. And I wonder what, what other fields would you say are, are that way, like within the ancient Near East or even the classical world? I mean, I, I know there's been more excavations lately in Turkey than in previous years. What, what else would you say maybe to students who might be interested in the field as a whole, but maybe not Egypt specifically to, to think about focusing in? Well, Israel is really heavily investigated. There's always interesting projects there. Don't take me wrong. You know, it's a great place to go and dig and learn how to dig. Uh, but there's a lot more work going on in Jordan now um, that has opened up recently. Um, I would have said until 2011, Syria, but that's we don't know how long that is ever going to be before that settles down. 
Um, Cyprus is remains an excellent place to excavate and an intriguing place. It's not overly dug. It's not overly populated by archaeologists. Um, Anatolia is expensive to work in. That's one of the drawbacks there. It's a very expensive place because you have to have a local partner you have to pay for and all this kind of thing. Basically, if you're going to dig in Turkey, you need about a quarter million just to get to the table. Which explains why it's major universities like University of Toronto. Yeah, correct. It's, it's, you know, University of Vienna who've been digging Ephesus for a hundred years, this kind of thing. Um, It's a real challenge otherwise. Um, Well, it's a great, great country to excavate, but yeah. I think, I think caucuses are really interesting as to what's happening up there now in Georgia, some places like this. Um, it, Greece is, more, you know, it, there's few projects in a way that Americans can work on. They're classic projects. They're great projects. Corinth, the Agora, you know, Mycenae, Pylos, things like this. Um, they're great to work on, but you're not going to really be able to break into that mafia easily. Um, Libya, I think, if it settles down, will be a very interesting place to be. But right now, I think Sudan, in many ways, is that frontier that's that's open. And they're very interested in foreigners coming in. They've just made a treaty with Israel, so there's there's all kinds of openness now that wasn't there a couple of years ago. All right. Well, Tom, any other fun stories you can tell us right now? Any other, I'm trying to think of other projects that you've that you've run, that you've done, that we haven't touched on, that we could benefit from, from hearing... Uh, tell us a, a little bit, uh, actually, just about, I know Mark has talked on the podcast before about the, the work at Karnak, but is there anything you want to add? The, you know, as yeah, far it as... was very interesting for me to go because, I mean, we went in the first season of our, our work there uh, because Mark had, didn't have a great deal of experience in actually in the management end of the project. And that was really why I was there. I and mean, I'm not an Egyptologist. Um, but it was fascinating to me to observe the, uh, you know, the way in the process of the, the you know, an epigraphy project and, and the, the, the intensity you really have to have with observation and the repetitiveness of it. Look at it at 11 o'clock. Look at it at 1 o'clock. Look at it at 7 o'clock. You're going to see different things each time. And, and that shows us you can't just make a single pass over something. You know, you really got to engage it and see it in its context and its setting, because that will then allow you to figure out and say, oh, that's an, an erased cartouche. Well, maybe it isn't, you know, and then you see it in its total setting and you say, now, wait a minute, this is what's happening here underneath it. And that, I think, is something which uh, enlightened me in the process, and that I had a very specific, important assignment on that project. Mark had assigned me a very difficult task when I was there. And I think this reflected my experience and I think my years in the field that he sent me out to um, look at the horses um, and their genitalia and try and determine how excited they were to be used by the Pharaoh, as it were. Um, so I went through all of Karnak looking at horses, as it were. It was my moment of revenge for Borg. So... <laughs> I had a great time. Three days of wandering around, getting to know all the guards and all the guys. I did. It was a. It was, you it was a lot analyze of fun. every minute detail in all seriousness with the figure feet, and we wanted to see if there's anything artistically on any part of the horse at all that could be used to say this is maybe not Ramses but Mernepta or something along those lines. Is there a difference? Any it, and it's weird with our walls. So many of the horses to survive compared to actual depictions of Pharaoh in the chariot. It's like Pharaoh on his foot, but the chariots are basically all gone. So we have to work with what we've got, but yeah, we had we had some fun at Tom's expense over that one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but you do realize that you know everything comes together. I mean, 
all the minutest study you can possibly do. And, and I think I gained an appreciation for that I didn't have before. And so that was kind of fun. Um, also, you know, come on, staying in Luxor. I mean, yeah, we go in the first day, we walk through the Hybestia Hall, and he's like, this is where we work? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> we work every morning. I'm walking into one of the the core sites of the ancient world, you know, and it, you pinch yourself and you say, I'm going to work. And I'm walking into the hypostyle hall. And it's like that on it's three, any, wherever I work in field archaeology is like that. You know, it's, I'm going to work and I'm digging here in Jordan or I'm digging here in Sudan or I'm digging in Sinai or I'm digging in Cyprus or I'm digging in Kazakhstan. You know, it's, I'm going to work. And I love what I do. And, you know, I've somehow been able to persuade somebody to pay me to do it. So life is pretty good. <laughs> now, here's a question. It, is there a place that you kind of your your dream spot you would love to work as a site or a region in the world? You do have one that, you know, you, <laughs> you haven't been to yet that you would love to. I would love to have dug in Syria. Yeah. Um. Particularly at Crack de Chevalier. Yeah, yeah. The Great Crusader Castle, which unfortunately has been rather heavily damaged in the Civil War. I saw it before that, I saw it twice. So I'm very pleased that I did that. And also, it would be sort of like going in the footsteps of Lawrence of Arabia, you know, who started his career excavating at Carchemish in Syria. I saw a bar bill of his stuck up on the wall at the uh, Baron's Hotel in Aleppo. Um, he didn't pay it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it just connects you with this previous generation. Um, you know, Agatha Christie's world, uh, all this world that's long gone now, but you see faint echoes of it in some ways in archaeology. And, uh, yeah, I, it would be probably, probably Syria, but that's not going to happen in my lifetime. It's funny. Most people have a bucket list of places they want to travel Tom, yours is a bucket list of places you want to excavate. <laughs> Stay for six weeks. No, I, I've been blessed. I mean, I, I've dug in Bronze Age Jordan. I've dug in Roman Cyprus. I've dug in, you know, New Kingdom Sinai. I've dug in um, 25th Dynasty Egypt. I've dug in 13th century Kazakhstan. Um, not everyone can say that that's kind of range of their excavational experience. So I've been blessed in my field. I really have. And shout out to your wife, Jenny, for putting up with all that. Oh, you've got, <laughs> she has gone on two excavations with me in my entire career. My fault. Uh, the first time was in Tel Hyatt, in Jordan. We were graduate students and she was working in Arizona. So she got off to go and we had a kiln we had found. And in the kiln was a skull and a severed right hand. Okay. That that's an ancient murder. We have no idea whether this was the potter. Was it a bad customer? Was it Mrs. Potter? You know, we don't know. <laughs> um, never found out, but we had to clean it out. And it was a very tight space, so we sent my wife, who is rather small, down in there to clean it out. What we didn't tell was we'd seen a snake down there in the kiln. <laughs> my wife would kill me. So she happily cleans it out. <laughs> has a great time. Everything's good. We bring her out, and then one of the guys, idiots, told her there was a snake in the when we saw it, she didn't go on a dig for 20 years. <laughs> um, she let me know that this was not a good idea. And I should have told her. And uh, no uncertain terms. I'm, the name of the site was Hill the Snakes. Okay. So, yeah. Um, 
Another time was in Sinai when we were out there. I don't know if you were there that season or not. It had rained really heavily. And so we had followed out a trail of sherds that had been exposed. And uh, I'm looking down and I bend down to a shirt. I think thought it was a shirt. I brush it and it's not a shirt. I was standing on an anti-tank mine. This was a little Russian plate on it. <laughs> Which meant it was about, you know, 50 years old and probably very, very stable. <laughs> and um, I'm saying, okay, it's an eight, it's a tank mine. So it hasn't blown up yet. That's the good thing. I'm too light. That, that, that's also good. Um, I'm losing weight rapidly at the same time, you understand. <laughs> sweating it off. And I say, okay, well, maybe a, what will I do? And then I see the truck starting to come toward me. I said, oh, man, I, I, I got to get, I got to stop him. So like an idiot, I decide I'll dive off because if I get up, if I end up going to heaven and I say, God, look, I tried. Okay. You know, I died. <laughs> um, I might kill a few bonus points. Um, so I do that and it doesn't go off and I get back and uh, no, no, okay, great. Look, and life is beautiful after a moment like that. I mean, the desert was gorgeous. Um, well, a couple of years go by and I'm giving a church lecture about the excavation in Sinai, and somebody's asked me a question. Oh, did you see anything military while you were out there? I said, oh, yeah, I even stepped on a mine. <laughs> I have not told my wife this. <laughs> okay, so after the lecture, I get back in the car, and the temperature drops like 100 degrees. <laughs> and she says, you didn't tell me you stepped on a mine. And it was like, what? I Nothing? I don't want to hear a word. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we drove back in silence. Let me say my wife is still married to me for 42 <laughs> years. Okay. You know, just, just for everybody understand. Well, Mark, do you have any other questions or comments for Tom? I think I'm good. I, uh, I work with this guy. It's always an adventure as you can tell. And, uh, still multiple seasons to go. Indeed. And, uh, anybody out there interested in archeology, span you know, seriously going into archeology, span uh, let me recommend the Lipscomb program. Um, an MA and a PhD here in Near Eastern Archaeology. The MA is in Archaeology and Biblical Backgrounds, and the PhD is in Archaeology of the Ancient Near East. And we're going to have another track starting, which will be a Biblical Archaeology track within that PhD. So if this is of interest to you, you know, and you want to do this for real, then we're probably the best place to go. And we can we can put a link uh, on the, the podcast for people that are interested in checking out the program and, and seeing a bit more about... Um what you guys do there along with uh, your other colleague, Steve Ortiz as well, who's also been on the podcast. Um, but yeah. Well, we have seven archeological field projects right now. And I don't know of a single place out there that has that many or has hundred percent of their faculty involved in field research. So, you know, it's a good, it's exciting. Weird. It's an exciting place to be. Go Bisons. <laughs> a very undergrad. Of Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Undergraduate, man. A different animal. Um, I can't wait for you to teach your first, Nick. Oh, I'm going to blow their minds. Kyle, <laughs> well, I, I had this issue where they brought me in, you know, and they have to give me training, right? How to teach. Okay. You know. So we're having this 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 meeting of new faculty. And, you know, the, the undergrad faculty, you know, like from the English department are saying, oh, well, they're, they're so stressed. How are they feeling? How are they feeling? I said, I don't care how they feel. <laughs> just... <laughs> You know, maybe maybe they shouldn't write. Maybe it's too stressful for them. I said, I don't care. I'm not their friend. They go, well, well, don't you want to be there? I said, no. I said, I'm a Tilbin the Hun. <laughs> I'm a 
the worst nightmare. Scourge of God. I'm the scourge of God. <laughs> you better believe they're going to write. I don't care about COVID. I don't care what their family is. I can, he- I can hear the number of students signing up to study with you increasing at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you can do a PhD. You can do a PhD. But defense is not a coronation. I mean, you better, I'm not going to let you leave here until you're a scholar. And, you know, that's what you do. You're making scholars. You're not making degrees. And so I think that that's those shifts from undergraduate to graduate world, which is a big one. And we, and we need programs like that. We want to ensure that the best quality of work is being done. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, when these guys come out, they'll be able to hold their own with anybody from Harvard or Chicago or anywhere in the world. But thank you anyway for coming out. It's been a lot of fun chatting and hearing about projects and stories. And anything, Mark, you want to say to wrap us up here? No, I just, all, you know, this is this is what life is like here at Lipscomb, right? We we have a good time. We have serious research and we're all over the place in the field. And when you're a full professor with tenure, this is what you get. <laughs> <laughs> what can they do? <laughs> Well, Onscript listeners, thank you for listening. Again, tune in for next time when we have another uh, engaging uh, interview like this. So until then, keep on digging. You've been listening to Onscript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging.